pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that the rock doesn't move. We are so flaky and we are so mobile and we are so insecure. God, I am thankful that you don't move and that on you our feet is on solid rock. The solid rock of your word, the solid rock of your grace, the solid rock of your mercy. And that, Lord, though the world is filled with shifting sands and our lives are filled with shifting sands, we can be planted on you. God, we ask now that as we open up your word that you would change us. That you would not let us leave the same as we came. That you would penetrate our hearts. That you would transform us by your grace. That, Lord, you would love us so much that we could not be the same. Lord, let us today be challenged by your word and comforted by your word and transformed by your word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Humans are built for enduring. Have you ever thought about that? Think about running, for instance. There are a lot of creatures on earth that can run much faster than we can run. But there are very few creatures on earth that can run farther than we can run. I I read a book uh, a a while ago about a group of people called the Raramuri people. It's a tribe in Mexico, and the word Raramuri actually means running people. And so from the ages of all the way down into the early teens, up into the 80s, the men there particularly will run 200-mile races. One of their hunting techniques is that they will get into a line of about five men, and they will run after a turkey or a deer, and these five men will just run, and the deer is faster And the turkey is faster at first. And yet, these men, they just keep running and running and running. And if the deer tries to go to the right, the man in the back will swing right and force the deer back to the inside. If the deer tries to go left, the man will will swing left and force the, the deer back to the front. And then, when they think they've got the deer almost completely exhausted, the fastest of the men will take off in a dead sprint behind the deer, running until eventually the heart of the deer just burst. From trying to run and they will have the deer to eat or the turkey to eat but you know you we can look and we can see the endurance of humans in a lot of different aspects in our lives who does an eight-hour workday or a 10-hour workday or a 12-hour workday lions are some of the most powerful creatures on earth but let me just say i've seen them with my own eyes they just chilling in the shade all day that's all they do but we're working we think about Uh, The lifespan of a human. We have one of the longest lifespans. God built us for the purpose of endurance. And what all of you know is that life is filled with enduring, isn't it? That life is filled with enduring. Life is filled with moments in which you think you can't catch your breath and you just have to endure. Life is filled with hardship, and all you can really do is put one foot in front of the next foot, in front of the next foot, and endure. It's filled with betrayal, and heartbreak, and rebellion, and sin, and disease, and pain. And it requires enduring. What we're going to see this morning is that the Christian life is about enduring. 
that the Christian life is about who will endure to the end and what we might see as we endure this life and what we might experience as we live this life so that we can be effective disciples of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we will read verses 16 through 25. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew, 6, Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16, God's word says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious, but you are to sp- how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. If you'll remember back to last week, in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sends out his disciples. He calls them, he empowers them, and then he sends them out for their mission. And and, in last week's passage, we saw them called to a very specific ministry, a, a mission among the house of Israel, among the lost sheep of Israel. Not the Gentiles, not the Samaritans yet, but the but. Israel. And this week what we see is we see Jesus actually broadening the scope of their mission to explain to them not just what they are to do right now and what they are to experience right now, but what they are to experience in the days ahead, what they are to experience in the years ahead as they go among the Gentiles and the Israelites both. And I think that means that this has a very direct application to us. This has a very direct application to those of us disciples who live now after the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus says that I'm sending you someplace specific. I'm sending you out to live amongst the wolves. I'm sending you into the midst of the wolves. He says this in verse 16. He says that you're sheep and now you're going to go and live among the wolves. Now That's not real comforting, is it? Thank you, Jesus, for those encouraging words this morning. That doesn't look good on a billboard, though, does it? Jesus says, hey, you're a sheep. You're going to go live among the wolves. Can I just tell you, y'all ever thought about this? What defense does a sheep have against a wolf? Is he just going to bat it to death? That's all a sheep's got. Sheeps don't have snake. They're not like spitting cobra can blind you and do all that kind of cool stuff. They have powerful jaws like a crocodile crushing through a Volkswagen. They're a sheep. Sheep are vulnerable to wolves. Sheep are defenseless against wolves. What, why would Jesus send sheep to live among the wolves? 
And why on any, would any sane sheep go among the wolves? You see, the only sane explanation for a sheep to go and to live among wolves is that it totally, completely, unquestionably trusts its shepherd. It's the only reason. This is what's in view here. This is what Jesus is challenging his disciples on. This is the, the implied question behind what Jesus is saying. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Is your faith really in me? Are you really going to go where I send you? Are you really going to believe that I will meet your needs? Are you really going to rest in my providing grace and my protecting power? Are you really going to trust your shepherd? See, the truth for all of us Christians this morning is that God does not call us out of a dangerous world. He sends us into the midst of it. Jesus, when he saved you, did not call you out of the world because of the danger. He sent you into the world with a wolf-taming message of the gospel. Unfortunately, Christianity has gotten a bad reputation of trying to live bubble-wrapped lives, haven't we? You turn on Hollywood right now, and in any sitcom you watch, there's a Christian there. There will be one of two caricatures. Caricature number one is there will be a money-grubbing, adulterous pastor that is a blatant hypocrite, obviously unwilling to live out the things that he preaches, obviously unwilling to apply the word of God to his own heart as he stands on a self-righteous pulpit telling everybody else what they should do. And then caricature number two is... Where did you park your, park your spaceship, hairpiece wearing, pocket protecting, loving nerd? Right? Living a bubble wrapped life with bubble wrapped children. When you go to Africa, and I say when because you're all going to go. When you go to Africa, one of the things that you'll discover there is that everyone lives behind a wall. It's a whole continent that lives behind a wall. It, there, there are fences and walls and barbed wire everywhere. Because that, there's so much poverty and there's so much need that people will plunder and steal so that they might be able to have and might be able to eat. Unfortunately, the church has a reputation as living as a people behind a wall. Afraid to send our children into the world. Afraid to go into the world ourselves. Instead, we want to build for us a Christian bubble, a Christian cocoon, that where everybody wears the same shirt as us, has the same words as us, has the same haircut as us, so that we can all watch uh, Duck Dynasty together, eat Chick-fil-A, and have a big time. Right? Do you know what we see in chapter 10, verse 16? Bubble-wrapped Christianity isn't biblical. Bubble-wrapped Christianity isn't even Christian. Christians live among the wolves. Christians are sent into the depths of the earth, into the depths of the depravity, into the depths of the world, so that we might proclaim the wolf-taming message of the gospel. Don't live bubble-wrapped lives, brothers and sisters. And don't teach your children to live bubble-wrapped lives. Teach your children how to live among 
wolves. Sanitized, bubble-wrapped Christianity isn't Christianity at all. Evaluate your life. Do you trust the shepherd or not? Do you trust the shepherd? It's terrifying to send your children among the wolves. It's terrifying to send your grandchildren among the wolves. It's terrifying to go among the wolves yourself. It's terrifying to speak up in a pagan world as a spiritual person. It's terrifying. But do you trust the shepherd? That's the question. Do you trust that he is worth it? Do you trust in his providing grace? Do you trust in his protecting power? Do you trust the shepherd? Now, there's one of two groups of people I know in this room that's responding to what I just said. Because those are difficult teachings. Those are difficult words. There's group A. And group A is I'm talking about sending children in among the wolves and sending yourselves in among the wolves. You're filled with angst and fear and anxiety. And and you're even going through all of uh, the, the Bible verses that you have memorized trying to find some that will excuse you from not having to do that, right? And then there's group B. And you're like Chuck Norris for Jesus. Christian, when we talk about dangerous fate and courageous fate, your mind goes, man, that's the closest I'm ever going to get to a Rambo movie. Sign me up. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go to the the closed off countries where I got a lot of the customs department. Go tell people about Jesus. Let's do that. Right? People that, whose default is to, to have this abrasive, obnoxious, dogmatic, let's, let's go, right? Jesus knew you were coming. Jesus knew that Peter wasn't the only Peter to come. And Peter wasn't the only Peter to be. That the church was going to be filled with loudmouthed and obnoxious people. It's just reality. It's all people from all nations. That means the people like me, they're loud. Zach, loud. Right? Everybody said amen. Did you hear that? That was awesome. (laughs) That was awesome. (laughs) So Jesus sends us out with explicit instructions to help build for us parameters, to help build for us guardrails so that as we go as sheep among the wolves, we might go as sheep that are proper ambassadors for him. Notice what he says. He says, in ver- at the end of verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents. Your, your translation might say, shrewd as serpents, shrewd as snakes. The snake in Jesus' time was a revered creature, a creature that was respected and honored and, and, and understood to be a symbol of wisdom and power. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? When Jesus tells us to be as wise as serpents, as as wise as say, as shrewd as serpents, what is he saying? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Live in a dangerous world, doing dangerous things for the accomplishment of a dangerous mission as wisely and safely as possible. We talk a lot about doing courageous things here. And we're going to keep talking a lot about doing courageous things. 
We talk about going to courageous places, and we're going to keep talking about going to courageous places. We talk about living courageous Christian lives, but, and we're going to continue to talk about living courageous Christian lives. But at the end of the day, the goal is not to die. We must be willing to die. We must be willing to lay down our life at any moment. But the goal is not to die among the wolves, but to live among the wolves and to preach to them the the wolf-taming message of the gospel. The goal is to offer them something, to live among them as salt and as light, to call them to faith, to live lives that are respectable and honorable. Think about a snake. How different is a snake from a lion? A lion roars and it announces its presence. It seems like I remember a lion's roar can go like 10 miles. can be heard like 10 miles away. Nobody ever knows where the snakes are. The snakes are under the brush. The snakes are camouflaged in. They don't chase after in this violent chase and dramatic chase across great savannas hoping to take down the zebra. No, they're cunning. And subtle. They're not uh, unnecessarily loud. They're not unnecessarily obnoxious. They they just they they work in the background. Jesus is painting this as the picture for his disciples. That we are to work wisely. We are to work with wisdom and common sense and, and with the ability to function in the background, calling people to faith, calling the wolves to be transformed into sheep. You see, there's a difference between courageous Christianity and abrasive Christianity. And I think we've blurred the line a lot in the American church. There's a difference in living as salt in life. And there's a difference in being confrontational so that someone might come to the gospel and just naturally being confrontational and offending as many people as you can. It is not the goal of the church to offend the world. It is not the goal of Christians to offend their non-Christian friends. It is not the goal of the Christian to offend every atheist that you know. Sure, anger will come. Offense will be taken. But that isn't the goal. The goal is to live and to share with them a message of good news. Good news. That they can be saved. They can be delivered by a God that loves them. I'm not sure of many things that have damaged the reputation of the church more than abrasive Christianity and abrasive evangelism. We are to live wisely, not calling unnecessary attention to ourselves, not calling and and screaming and being unnecessarily confrontational. Instead, living and, and showing people righteousness in the midst of unrighteousness and calling them to Jesus as the only way that's possible. This morning, I'm challenging you, be wise, be courageous, don't be abrasive. He doesn't just say, be as wise as a serpent. He says to be as innocent as a dove. So we walk in the world wise as a serpent and at the same time, innocent as a dove. So what we might say is, not only is it our responsibility to live in a dangerous world and do dangerous things for the accomplishment of a great dangerous mission, for the... uh, as wisely as possible, but to live in a dangerous world and for the accomplishment of a dangerous mission as purely as possible. As purely as possible. If there's anything that has damaged Christianity more than abrasive Christians and abrasive churches, it is hypocritical ones. 
It is ones who say and preach and tell and tell everybody else about their sin and tell everybody else about their immorality while at the same time having hidden and sometimes not so hidden immorality in their own lives. As a youth pastor for a long time, let me just tell you the number one reason that I had trouble getting teenagers to come to church. It was because they had moms and dads that lifted their hands in worship on Sunday and then exasperated them throughout the week. Moms and dads who were the first ones in their Sunday school classes with their Bibles to lead, to listen. And at the same time came home and spoke just like the world spoke and thought just like the world thought and lived just like the world lived. The most common reason that people that you work with won't come to the church and won't come to the gospel is because they have heard people like you before and then watch them berate the boss just as badly, live just as unjustly, and be just as ungracious as every other pagan on the workforce. When Jesus tells us to live as innocent as a dove, he is telling us to live lives that are above reproach. To live lives of character and integrity. To live lives of, that, are, that can, must, would always have the, uh, the affirmation of innocence about them. Where if people make claims against you, other people can speak up and say, well, that's not been my experience. It's living a life in which your legacy will outlive the accusations. Isn't that how Jesus lived? Jesus lived a life that we all know to be completely pure. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus didn't, uh, didn't, uh, was never unrighteous. Jesus was never wrong about anything. Jesus lived with honor and integrity and character. So much so that when people wanted to kill him, it took them so long for the mere fact they couldn't pin him on anything. Every time they'd get him on something, he would, he would answer their question about, well, I guess we didn't think about it like that before. And they'd go back to the drawing board, right? But Jesus' life outlived his accusations. Now we know that that didn't mean he, didn't get, he wasn't persecuted. Jesus died on the cross. Living innocently in a wicked world does not move beyond persecution. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But living in a, a pure life in a wicked world allows the church to have integrity and character. When we tell them that Jesus loves them and has delivered them from their sin and they can follow us to find him. Can I just plead with you parents for a second? Live lives of integrity in front of your children. Live lives of integrity in front of your children. We talk a lot about family discipleship. Step number one, before you ever get to the Bible, before you ever get to the gospel, step number one is living out the gospel in your house. Living as a man or a woman of integrity and character. Seeing them wondering, why, why doesn't mom let me lie like that? Why doesn't dad ever kind of just tell a little white lie to make things easier on himself? Why can't dad do that at work? Live lives of courageous integrity, Christian integrity, and tell them why. So that they might follow you to Jesus. When you live a hypocritical life, you are cutting the teeth out of any message you bring them to hear or that you tell them yourself. Next, what we see throughout the text repeatedly is Jesus says when you will be persecuted. Look in verse 17. 
He says, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you. Verse 19, when they deliver you over. Verse 22, he says, and you will be hated by all uh, for my name's sake when they persecute you in one town. Uh, he, all, throughout the, the text this morning, the assumption is persecution. The assumption for Jesus' disciples then, and remember this, this text is talking broadly about Jesus' future disciples too. And so it's about us, that we will experience persecution. That per- persecution is the assumption of the Christian life that is going to come. Now I think that makes it really important for us to understand exactly what we mean when we say persecution. What is persecution? Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. You remember when we preached through the Beatitudes, we talked a lot about this one. But I think this is helpful for us understanding what we're talking about when we talk about persecution. So in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, when we think about persecution, we typically think about martyrdom. And that certainly is persecution and the most extreme cases of persecution. And we should, we should rally as the church around the martyrs of the church. But per, the definition of persecution is much broader than just those that die for the faith. Jesus includes all those who revile and hate you. So persecution goes from everything from slander to death for the purpose of loving, because you love Jesus. So we might, we might define persecution as any time a person or a group of people come against you for the purpose of maliciously attacking you, attacking your faith, attacking your reputation, or attacking your life because you love Jesus. That's what separates persecution from hardship. Not all hardship in the Christian life is the result of persecution. We have hardship because we live in a broken world and our world is just filled with hardship. We have hardship because we sin and there's hardship in our lives because of our own sinfulness. But when someone comes against us and someone slanders us or someone mocks us or someone gossips about us behind our back, when someone attempts to go to the boss and cost us our job, whatever that looks like, when that happens because we love Jesus, that is persecution. And that is to be expected, Jesus said. And I think that leaves us with a soul-searching question this morning. A question that we need, to, we need to get behind the layers of our heart and really get to the middle of it. Are you being persecuted? Are you being persecuted? A better question perhaps is, if you are not being persecuted, why not? Why not? The Christian life should be easily mocked by an unbelieving world. The Christian life should look irrational to an unbelieving world. Christian parenting should seem nonsensical to an unbelieving world. You should be getting slandered for the way that you raise your children. You should be getting mocked for the way that you lead your life. You should be getting insulted for the way that you give away your money. You should be getting mocked. And if you are not, why not? Why not? Could it be that you are living a life that is so powerless that is completely indiscernible from the unbelieving world? 
Could it be that the enemy has seen you as being zero gospel threat to him and is not needed to come after you at all? Or could it be that your Christianity is false to begin with? Could it be that you're not being persecuted because you don't know the Lord and you don't follow the Lord and you don't walk with the Lord and you don't love the Lord more than you love the world? If you're not being persecuted, you need to search your soul and ask why not. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. No exception. The strange thing about the New Testament is that throughout the New Testament, it doesn't revile persecution. It doesn't hate persecution. When we were on mission with our mission team in Salt Lake City, and we were listening to the Mormons talk, one of the things the Mormons always loathe, always despise, and always go to is that we've always been persecuted. We've always been persecuted. We've always been put behind the eight ball. We've always been given hardship. We've always had a hard time. But the New Testament doesn't revile persecution. The New Testament doesn't hate persecution. It embraces persecution. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5 a few minutes ago. He said, blessed are the persecuted. You remember what we said the word blessed there can be translated as when we did the Beatitudes? Happy. Happy are the persecuted. Happy. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are the persecuted. Later in verse 12 he says, rejoice. First Peter, in 1 Peter, Peter says, it is God's will that you suffer. And 2 Timothy, Paul says that we should want to share in the sufferings of the cross. The New Testament embraces persecution because the New Testament understands that, the, that persecution is never pointless and always providential. Persecution is never pointless and always providential. That God organizes these things with the threads of providence and he sews together your life providentially so that you experience what you experience, have what you have, and are persecuted when you are persecuted for a purpose. You never experience purposeless persecution. Paul, uh, Jesus tells us too right here. Look in verse 18. What does he say? We'll get back to Matthew 5. Verse 18. He says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That you're going to be drugged, you're going to be flogged, you're going to be scourged and beaten and bloodied. And as you are brought before them, beaten and bloodied, you are to remember you are there for a purpose. You are there for a platform to bear witness about my kingdom. Bear witness about my grace. Bear witness about my glory. You see, in our persecution, God often gives us a platform, doesn't he? God often gives us a platform to say things that we couldn't say otherwise. He gave, in the book of Acts, he is going to give his apostles the spirit-empowered opportunity to testify to some of those powerful people in all of the world about the gospel. And some of them are going to be saved. That's ridiculous. You got fishermen talking to, to, to rulers of the land and say, hey, you're stiff-necked, bro. And they're going to be saved. I wonder what platforms we're missing because we have 
work our entire lives to avoid persecution. Did you know that persecution is one of the strongest tools, one of the greatest tools for church growth that was ever invented? Church growth is not about cool lights and fancy music. God grows the church through persecution. Through persecution. You can't see the Red Sea split unless you're a slave in Egypt. You can't know what it means to have the fiery furnace quenched and the mouths of lions shut until you're in exile in Babylon. Could it be that God is going to use persecution to revive his church? Could it be that God is going to use persecuted Christians to bring revival to the American church and to the global church for his glory? Could it be that God would wake us up from our apathy through the vehicle of persecution? Don't run from persecution. Rejoice in it. Blessed are the persecuted. Happy are those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Not only does it give us a platform, though, but persecution serves to prove our salvation. To prove our salvation. Look at what he says in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end must be saved. The New Testament knows nothing of a salvation that does not endure. Salvation in the New Testament is not a profession of faith, a quick sprouting, uh, a quick sprouting of faith, and then a falling away. The New Testament does not say that as long as you have prayed the sinner's prayer and been baptized in a baptistry that now you are saved. The New Testament says that your faith, saving faith, will be enduring and persevering faith. And for it to be considered enduring and persevering faith, you must have something to endure. You must have something to persevere. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get into Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. But a picture that, the, the picture that Jesus paints of this quick profession of faith and this sprouting faith that quickly dies is seed that has fallen upon bad soil. It's not somebody that's a carnal Christian in the world that is just backslidden. It's someone that doesn't know Christ at all. One of the tests that you can give yourself to know whether or not you're in the faith is are you enduring? Are you enduring? Are you lasting? Or are you always falling away, feeling guilty, and then coming back? Saving faith endures to the end. God uses persecution to purify his church. God uses the flames of persecution to melt the impurities out of the metal. You see... When you think about church history, if you were to go all the way back to the early church, that was when the church was her most pure. That was when the church was her strongest. That was when the church was her most courageous. And it was while they were being lit as candles and burned with fire, crucified on crosses, and thrown out into the streets and beaten. It wasn't until Constantine made Christianity mainstream across all of the Roman Empire, and then later people began to be forced into Christianity that the church began to weaken. Whenever church and whenever Christianity becomes culturally acceptable, the church suffers. And yet when Christianity is persecuted, the church thrives. It's pure. 
People don't have time to argue about the carpet. They're trying to defend the gospel. They're fighting for their lives. Cultural Christianity cannot survive the fires of persecution. That's why many have fallen away. That's why the church, the Southern Baptist Church, has shrunk over the last 20 years. Because Christianity is no longer cool. Christianity is no longer uh, cultural. Christianity is no longer morally obligated. I believe there are just as many, if not more, saved people today. There are just less pagans in our church. God is purifying his church through the flames of persecution. And we should praise him for it. We should praise him for it. This morning, evaluate your life. Would you pass the endurance test? Do you pass the test that your faith is a persevering and enduring faith? See, why are we to do all of this? Why are we to experience all this? Why are we to willingly embrace persecution? It's because we embrace the cross. That's really what's at stake. That's why if you can't make it through persecution and you would give up in persecution, you aren't really a Christian. Because you haven't really taken hold of the cross. It was the cross of Christ in which he experienced pain and persecution. It was the cross of Christ through his sufferings in which you were redeemed and set free. If you are not willing to grab hold of the same cross yourself, you don't really have Christ to start with. Throughout the text he says, why are you willing to be hated for my name's sake? For my name's sake. Later he says, he says is, the, is the student greater than the teacher? Is the disciple greater than the Lord? No, if I suffer, you suffer. But it's only for a little while, church. It's only for a short season, church. Because I'm coming back for you. And there won't be suffering. There won't be crosses. There won't be the flames of persecution. Just the church in all of her splendor. Totally consummated, sanctified, set free. All of it's going away. Just endure to the end. Just endure until the Son of Man returns. Just endure for a little while, and I'm coming back for you. And I am gonna, we are going to reign victoriously and triumphantly forever. Brothers and sisters, cling to the cross. Embrace the cross. Live a life worthy of the cross. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you sent your Son 